That was beautiful choir, thank you. And what has become a well-known interview with Bono, maybe you don't know who Bono is, he's the lead singer of U2, maybe you don't know who U2 is, um, go home and YouTube them. Um, um, Bono is highlighted in an interview talking about his decision to come to know Jesus Christ. And this is, this is what he said in part. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know what you put out comes back to you. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. And yet, all of a sudden, along comes this idea called grace. To upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be finally my judge. So I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus Christ took my sins on the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend upon my religiosity. The point of the death of Christ is that he took on the sins of the world so that all we put out does not come back on us and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death it is due. That's the point. And it should keep us humbled it is not our good works that would ever get us through the gates of heaven. That, church, is a pretty powerful testimony because that church is a testimony to the power of God's grace. And it is this power of God's grace that you and I should share. In 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman's leprosy was some sort of psoriasis. It was some type of skin disease, but it was not what we would call Hansen's disease. It was not the form of leprosy that Mother Teresa ministered to in Calcutta. It was not the type of leprosy that would require him in the New Testament to stand outside the gate and declare, unclean, unclean. This is a different type of leprosy. Otherwise, Naaman would not be called a great man or a valiant warrior. You see, he could live something of a normal life, albeit he dealt with persistent discomfort. And Naaman's accomplishments were great. They were noteworthy. They were renowned. It is what makes the start of this passage all the more compelling to me. As powerful as Naaman was, there was nothing, there was nothing he could do in his own strength to cure his condition. While 2 Kings does not come right out and say it, the connection we need to draw out is that it doesn't matter our name, it doesn't matter our credentials. It doesn't matter our possessions. None of us have the means within ourselves, of ourselves. We don't have the strength to cure our sin condition either. 
We need the outworking of the power of God's grace. But how would a pagan like Naaman learn of such grace unless someone shared it with him? I mean, the apostle Paul later says in Romans 10, 14 and 15, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How does Naaman learn of that which only God can do? Honestly, there is a process that unfolds, but it begins with an unnamed young girl who tells Naaman's wife about a prophet in Israel. Think about this, how remarkable her sharing of this good news is. Okay, we don't even know her name. So don't think you have to be important are significant to be able to share the power of God's grace with someone. But what's especially striking here is that this young girl would have been pulled out of, yanked out of her home during a military conquest, away from her parents, away from her family, and then stuck into somebody's house as a servant. If anyone had reason not to share the gospel of grace with someone, you might say it was this girl. And yet she freely shares his grace. I think Dr. Dale Davis is right to point out that people are often brought into the kingdom of God at great cost to other people. Maybe you know the story of Elizabeth Elliot. She was the wife of the missionary Jim Elliot, who was killed by Aka Indians in his missionary attempts. And if you know the story of Elizabeth Elliot, after her husband's life has been taken, she and her toddler daughter go back to Ecuador to witness and minister to those individuals, that tribe who had taken her husband. No matter what, no matter who, everyone should be able to hear the power of God's grace. And so this little girl points Naaman in the right direction. I just have to ask, are we pointing people in the right direction? Not trying to step on toes, but if I do, okay. When's the last time you invited someone to church to hear the word of God proclaimed? It might seem that the seed we throw out never takes root, but we never know when we share about the power of God's grace what will come to pass in due time. And what I know is that the power of God's grace can overcome 
ignorance. It overcomes the ignorance of others who would misdirect us, and it overcomes our own misguided ignorance too. Naaman, the valiant warrior that he was, would have held respect with his king. And so hearing that perhaps there's this prophet in Israel who could heal him, Naaman requests permission from the king to leave. And the foreign king says, go. You're the captain of my armies. If there's someone who can cure you, by all means. And so what does he do? The king of Aram sends a correspondence to the king of Israel that Naaman was coming, and Naaman was coming to be cured of leprosy. Now you may think, I'm stretching this, but I don't believe that I am. It's equivalent to saying that our governmental systems can somehow solve our problems, that our governmental systems can somehow make everything okay. Only Israel's king, in spite of all of his flaws, and there are many, I don't have time to go into, He's at least smart enough to know that he does not have the power to heal a person's infirmity. Sadly, however, he fails to recognize the one who does. How tremendously sad is it when our leaders do not know and do not submit to the word of God? What happens is that these leaders misdirect people to go to wells that run dry rather than wells that spring up to eternal life. What happens is that they take God out of the equation. What happens is our schools begin teaching false ideologies that promote ignorance grounded in hopelessness. Only let me assure you today that the power of God's grace remains far, far greater than a prayerless, secular society. Let me assure you today that God can remove any obstacle in drawing sinners unto himself. The obstacle in need of tearing down most often, however, is our own misguided ignorance. Naaman doesn't just take a couple of dollars. <laughs> this dude takes a boatload of cash. And he's got an entourage going with him. And he has an expectation about religion. He has an expectation about personal healing. Let's just say, however, things don't go out the way he thinks they should. You see, he's an important man. He's a man who thinks that the church should cater to him, that the church should cater to his expectation. But that's not what unfolds at all. Elisha is not even there to meet Naaman. He sends out a servant. Naaman is not concerned about Naaman's demands. Sorry, Elisha is not concerned about Naaman's demands. Elisha is concerned only about the demands of God. It did not matter that Naaman had status. It did not matter that he had wealth. It mattered only whether or not Naaman chose to obey the word of the Lord that was presented to him. Naaman's grammar in verse 11 shows that the message and the messenger aggravated him quite a bit. The Hebrew Bible literally translates Naaman to say, Look, I thought he would certainly come out to me, to me. The emphatic expression of the words to me 
suggests that Naaman wanted to be recognized and honored. He was not your ordinary fellow. He should not be treated as such. The church should cater to his demands. The church should make a fuss over him. But Elisha does not make a fuss over him. He treats him as a leper in need of being healed. He treats him as someone who needs the touch of the power of God's grace. You want to be healed? The messenger that Elisha sends out to him says, do this. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored. You will be cleansed. But Naaman's ignorance almost keeps him from being cleansed. His ignorance was pride. His ignorance was what Dr. Davis calls the scandal of particularity. Some are offended, like Naaman initially was, by the message of God's grace. They don't like hearing that they can do nothing or that they cannot have a say in the way that they are saved. And yet, the power of God's grace, the beauty of God's grace, is that it's free. There's nothing we can do to earn it, to buy it. In verse 15, we will see how Naaman will respond once he comes to terms with the fact that the narrowness of God's message is what it is. You see, in 1948, when the Jews in Jerusalem were slowly being strangled by the Arabs, some of the ultra-Orthodox rabbis spoke to Dov Joseph, who was a Canadian lawyer in charge of guiding the remaining Jews who wanted to work out a deal of some sort with the Arabs. They had been hard hit. They hoped their women and their children would at least be spared through some sort of compromise. But Dov Joseph knew that such a recourse would infect the whole city with panic. So he told the rabbis, you do what you believe to be right, and I shall do what I believe to be right. A long silence followed. See, Dov Joseph was not a man to be trifled with. The spokesman asked him what he believed was right. He answered, I think that if anyone attempts to raise the white flag, he will be shot. There was no room for negotiation. It was an either-or ultimatum, no tolerance, do, this, do it this way or die. I, I need you to hear the words are, wash in the Jordan and be cured of leprosy. There's no other way. That's it. It may sound preposterous. It did to Naaman. But as preposterous as that might sound, perhaps there's one thing even more ridiculous to some people. The idea that putting your trust and faith in a man who was executed on a cross almost 2,000 years ago 
And in doing so, you can have a renewed life. In doing so, you can have forgiveness from sin. In doing so, you can be resurrected from the dead and unto eternal life. Now that beats all. But that's the particularity of our salvation. There's only one way. It's an either-or ultimatum. It's Christ or it's death. And the obstacle then is that we don't like being said there's only one way. We don't like being said that we have nothing to contribute. We don't like being told we're not a big deal and that we need this grace that we can't earn because it's this grace that is free. In verse 15, Naaman has done finally at the urging again of some unnamed individuals these unnamed people in this story who are pointing Naaman to the power of grace. And then in verse 15, after he has heeded the word of God, he comes back and he says to Elisha that he wants to give him money for what has happened. Verse 16 reads, I'll read it again. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, Elisha refused. The reason why Elisha refuses is because he did not want to pollute or pervert the grace of God. If you continue reading this chapter, you will see Gehazi, his servant, does pollute and pervert God's grace. But what Elisha wants Naaman to understand is God's grace is free. That's the nature of God. That's what distinguishes Christianity from all the false religions of the world. It was during a British conference that these scholars were discussing comparative religions and they were asking, well, what made Christian faith different from others? Uh, was it the incarnation? Other religions, they decided, said that gods appeared in human form. Was it the resurrection? Other religions made claims of those who overcame death. And so this debate was carrying on when C.S. Lewis came into the room. And so these colleagues asked him how he would choose to answer that question. And C.S. Lewis didn't miss a beat. He said, that's easy, one word, grace. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, that seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, I could go on. 
Every other religion stresses a way for you and me to earn approval somehow. But only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional and his offer of salvation free. Maybe you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, or perhaps you've at least heard of it. The movie is about a select small group of army rangers who are sent out by the government to rescue one private named Ryan because his brothers had all been killed in the war and the government didn't want his parents to suffer the loss of yet their last child. And so here's this small select group of army rangers sent out to rescue this young man. In an effort to save him, all of these army rangers die. And the last to do so is a character played by Tom Hanks, who was the leader of that small ranger unit. And when Hanks is there dying, Private Ryan leans over him to hear Tom Hanks say, earn this. I get what the director of the film intends in that moment, especially in how the film ends, but I also know how unlikely it would be for an army ranger to utter the words, earn this. You see, the ranger's regimental motto has never been that. The ranger motto is sua sponte. I choose this. In other words, if Tom Hanks' character were being true to the spirit of the army rangers, he would have actually said, I volunteered for this. This is free. You owe nothing for it. I chose to give my life for yours. And that's precisely what makes the Christian faith unlike any other. God's grace never says to you and me, earn this. When you look at the cross, Jesus doesn't say, I've given everything for you, now you pay up. What he says is sua sponte. I volunteered for this. My grace is free. Now, I will say that by no means suggests if we understand the free nature of God's grace that we're not impacted by it. Far from that. Don't you know that Private Ryan would have always been changed by the sacrifice of those army rangers? And don't you know if we truly receive God's gift of healing and salvation in our lives, that the power of God's grace will change us. Naaman was so arrogant. He was so angry earlier in the account because he did not yet know the Lord. But the fact that Naaman is converted to authentic faith is undeniable. The Bible depicts his change of heart, his change of mind, his change of attitude. Apparently, a leper truly can change his spots. Thank you, Christine. I know you're paying attention. You're repeating after me. That's great. Notice Naaman's confession of monotheism. Naaman 
first introduces the name of Yahweh as only Elisha's God in verse 11. But then he explicitly identifies Yahweh as his own God in verses 17 and 18. And then notice Naaman's change from arrogance to humility. Five times, I tried to actually accentuate it as I read earlier, but five times in verses 15 to 18, while speaking to Elisha, Naaman now refers to himself as your servant. That's a change. I don't think it's a stretch to say that this professed commitment and this professed pronounced change are connected to a so-called bath. Such faith and new life echoes the Christian experience with baptism. We trust and obey the word of God. We receive the good news of Christ, and then we are washed in the baptismal waters. Like Naaman, I was once a leper, but God's grace changes even me. Have you yet to be cleansed by the atoning work of Jesus and been baptized in his name? The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 3, 26 and 27, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all who are baptized into Christ clothe themselves with Christ. So it is that the Apostle Paul talks about our past sins in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 before beginning verse 11 saying, And that is what some of you were, but you were washed. And that is why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 6, verse 4, we were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It is like the young man from Dr. Lloyd-Jones's first church that he pastored who explained that his father had been converted we have dinner together as a family the past several nights, the boy explained, meat and potatoes and sometimes even rice pudding. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones looked at the boy and said, how would that possibly suggest to you that your father has been converted? And the boy said, well, while my dad once spent on liquor to get drunk, he now spends on food to bring home to his family. Or take the maid who wanted to join Charles Spurgeon's church at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Spurgeon asked her to explain how Christ had changed her, and the young lady blushed and looked at him and said, well, now I sweep under the rugs. <laughs> Listen, in one case, dinner instead of booze. In another, a broom under some mats. In both cases, God's transforming grace leaves signs of change. And yet none of us are completely changed. Who in here does not struggle with some sin in your life? So we're going to pause now and we're going to take time for each of you to share what that sin is.
But we see it, honestly, with Naaman. Verses 18 and 19 read, But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And Elisha doesn't say, well, you can't be a Christian then. Elisha says, go in peace. For the legalist, that's pretty hard to deal with. But I've got to tell you, every faithful person who does not completely abandon the world is confronted with this gut-wrenching issue of the divided loyalties that we have between something and God. Every single one of us have some residue of sin yet in our life. If you, if you doubt this even, go and read the end of Romans chapter 7. Paul is explicit about it. Elisha's answer neither approves nor judges. Elisha's answer just sends Naaman forth to live his life in faith as best he can. I really love the words of John Newton. You know John Newton. He wrote Amazing Grace. He was the former slave trader. And near the end of his life, he said this, Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor yet what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and to Satan. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. Nor yet am I what I hope to be. But I know this to be true. I am saved by the free and powerful grace of God through Christ Jesus. And I've got to ask you today, are you saved by his grace? By faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone. If the answer is not yes, if you're clinging to something that says, well, I'm yet good enough on my own, you're not. You need to be touched by the grace of God through Christ. That offer today is free. As our musicians are going to come and I pray, the altar will be open. Respond as the Lord may lead. Let's pray together. Lord Christ, that you chose to come and to take my place on Calvary. And not just to suffer the physical pain, but to have my sin 
imputed upon you who knew no sin so that your righteousness might be given to me. I cannot even really begin to fathom it, but I choose to embrace it. And I pray, Holy Spirit, today that you would move in the midst of this congregation. If everyone here has a personal relationship with Jesus, praise God, may we go out and share that good news with those we come in contact with this week. But if there's someone here yet who needs to know and to experience the power of your grace, in these closing moments, Holy Spirit, won't you move? Break down the pride that grips their heart and have them respond. Jesus, be glorified, we pray. Amen.